And he says, well, let's take it head on. He says, I think I'm ready for this. So they take it head on. And the pitch of the boat was so great that uh, Clyde lost grip of the oars and was actually pitched out of the boat. And uh, they hit those uh, 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 diminishing waves uh, as, as they went through. But he was out of the boat and managed to climb back in the boat and in very exhausted uh, state and grabbed the oars. And the guy up front turned around and said, boy, Clyde, you did that really well. That was Roger Fletcher sharing a great drift boat story about one of my favorite rapids to run. And the drift boat season continues on. This is the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. I would love if you could leave feedback or a question for the show. You can easily do this by heading over to wetflyswing.com slash speak. Speak, that's S-P-E-A-K. That'll take you to the speak pipe, uh, speak pipe page where you can leave a voice uh, review. And I will uh, post that, if I can, on the uh, on an upcoming podcast uh, so you can hear your voice coming up here. I'm hoping uh, we can get a few of these and check it out. So so head over there now just to, to let me know it's working. That'd be awesome. Uh, Roger Fletcher, a leading authority in drift boat history and design, is here to share the story of how drift boats came to be. We find out who was the most important person in the history of drift boats and why. Find out uh, how the Grand Canyon Dory came to be and hear about uh, that whole history there. Pretty, uh, pretty exciting, pretty amazing stuff. We also dig into a little bit of um, Roger's uh, exact replica, replica models that he does, which are pretty amazing. So uh, today, drift boats, drift boats, and a little uh, river dory <laughs> is, is what's on tap for you. Hey, before we get started, I just want to take a moment to thank our sponsor for this episode. The Fly Fishing and Tying Journal uh, is our sponsor, and they're doing a great job over there. If you want to check out what they have going, head over to wetflyswing.com slash FTJ and see what the new uh, the newest uh, edition is right now. Here is Roger Fletcher from riverstouch.com. How's it going, Roger? It's going well, thank you. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on today. This is um, I've been doing a little bit of research uh, in preparation for this drift boat season that I'm doing, and I, it's pretty exciting to have you on here because I feel like you're probably one of the best people, you know, maybe in the world to talk talk to about the um, the history, which is what I want to dig in. You have a book called uh, Drift Boats and River Dories, and uh, it's a really good book. I've read um, you know a good chunk of it, and uh, I'd li- like to hear about the history. But maybe you can just start us off. T- tell us how you. You know, how, how did this all start? How, how do you become the, like, drift boat guru? <laughs> well, probably as much by chance as anything else. Uh, I have uh, I've been in the world of drift boats for the last, I uh, can't believe this, 60 years. Um, and my daughters grew up on the oars of a drift boat. And uh, I became attracted to them because they are such a beautiful piece of work. I love the lines of a, of a drift boat but also because of the navigability of the boat on, on rivers. And so it took me a little while to develop the, the skills, but when I did, I haven't been able to leave the sticks alone. Uh, although in recent years, because of age and, and other factors, uh, get out a lot less than I did then. So 
anyway, uh, my drift boating experience has been basically on the coastal rivers here, uh, in the stuck of the Salettes, uh, primarily, and then the Deschutes over in central Oregon and the Rogue River, one of my favorite places for fly fishing. I really like the Deschutes and for just running whitewater. I really enjoy the Rogue River. Drift boats were my escape, escape during my uh, professional career. Um, and uh, we would get out with the family uh, three or four times uh, a summer. And then I would get out more frequently as I was uh, had, had the time and energy. And I began uh, looking at um, my passion as something that I might recreate as fine furniture. Um, if you can imagine a drift boat coffee table or a um, a model of your favorite boat on your on your desk as a reminder of some of the fun times you've had on the river. And so I, I've always enjoyed working with wood. And so my intention was to, upon my retirement, uh, uh, to do just that. I built a 1,200 square foot shop about 10 years before I retired, and and started started uh, working with wood on a number of different things. But when I started looking at plans for drift boats, they basically were unavailable. Um, drift boat builders, uh, as one can appreciate because there are so few of them, are fairly proprietary in their um, uh, in, in, in availing uh, plans of their boats. They far, far prefer to build a boat for you or provide a kit. But to provide the plans in order to build the boat um, – you, you, you just couldn't find them. So that led me to figure out how I could address that, uh, that question. Uh, how, how did I get all those plans for these things? Uh, what I discovered was that there's, uh, there's a history to these boats. And uh, the most profound piece of history, as far as I'm concerned, is that uh, these boats were spawned on two Oregon rivers, uh, the drift boats on the McKinsey River, and the river dories, the Rogue River Dory down on the Rogue River. Um, and those spawning grounds gave rise to an evolution of boats that brought us to where uh, the typical boat type that we see uh, uh, navigating rivers today uh, are, uh, are, are those, either one of those two rivers. And uh, so that history, because of my background in research and education, my curiosity got the better of me. And it began about 19. 94, 95, I began to explore uh, the history of these boats. And the short story is that uh, over the next uh, 12 years, I uh, researched the origin. What I tried to do is to uh, find key points in time where there were key changes in the boat um, that led to additional changes over time. Uh, to what we have today, uh, which people consider to be the traditional McKinsey River drift boat. Uh, and if you're Colorado River oriented, the uh, Colorado River dory, which incidentally uh, was spawned on the McKinsey and the Rogue River. And so um, it, 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 all this led to a, a book um, that was published by Stackpole Books, which at that time in 1995 96, 97 was the leading uh, fly fishing publishing house uh, in the country, and it still may be. I, I don't, I don't know that, but that led to their publishing uh, my book, Drift Boats and River Dories, in uh, 2007, 13 years ago. Um, 
And uh, it basically chronicles the research that I've done, and that's in three basic areas. Uh, the lives of the people behind the boats as they evolved, evolved over time, uh, beginning uh, back in late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, a detailed uh, chapter on how the boats were built, and then uh, the biggest project had to do with recovering the lines in the construction detail of these boats at each point of evolution. Um, and that was a very onerous task, uh, very enjoyable, but just lots of work. And uh, it took anywhere from three to 500 hours per boat. Hmm. And I recovered the lines on 13 different boats, 10 of which are published uh, in the book. So it's this crazy passion I have for these boats that led to uh, uh, me spending an inordinate amount of time in researching the origins, recovering the lines and construction detail of the boats. And, and then there was sufficient interest on the part of actually four publishers uh, invited me to submit the manuscript uh, to them for consideration, three of whom wanted to publish the book. And I went with Stackpole primarily because of Fly Fishing Publishing House. And it seemed to me that that would be an audience that might have the greatest interest in the boat because... Uh, the McKinsey River Drift Boat in particular uh, evolved because uh, guides and fishermen on that river were looking for a fishing, uh, a stable fishing platform, fly fishing platform. So it's kind of a long-winded Let me of how I got into this. That's great. Yeah, no, I mean, as you talk, and like I said, I read the uh, the main, uh, the history uh, chapter, I guess, in your boat. And um, so we can dig into that. There's a bunch of people, you know, uh, Jerry Briggs and, Martin Linton and all sorts of uh, big names that helped the process. And actually, I do want to highlight just because I've been the Colorado, you know, I've, I'm lining up about 12 other guests to talk about to keep furthering the conversation on drift boats. And it's interesting because the Colorado, I, I've kind of been addicted to these videos. I've been watching these drift boats going down the Colorado and some of them flipping in these rapids because I've, like you, the Rogue has been the most extreme whitewater I've ever taken a drift boat down through. And I always think of that. But this, this uh, Colorado is a whole other level. I mean, the stuff that mm -hmm. they're going through is crazy. And I just, you know, it's like, it's my goal. You know, one of my life yeah. goals that I want to go down that river and run a, run a dory in some, some, some way. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, talk about that a little bit. The difference between, I, well, I mean, I guess we got that right. We got the whole dory thing, which was the decked over boats, which is a little bit different. Where would you like to start? Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Or do you want to go all the way back to the beginning uh, before there were drift boats? Well, one, one short story before there were drift boats uh, on the McKenzie, the boat of choice, and, and they started guiding the river down. Philip, Philip, by the name of Milo Thompson, is the first person to have taken uh, a person down the river for hire, for pay, to, to fish. And the boat he used was uh, came to be known as the Old Scow. And uh, 22 feet long, three feet across uh, the, the bottom line of the boat, chine to chine. And with a very, very low profile. And these guides, as they evolved, would use that boat. And it was the boat of choice simply because it was the only boat they had up until about 1925. And uh, so a picture of this uh, fell on the oars, this 22-foot, really cumbersome, heavily timbered uh, relic of a boat. And the fly fisher standing on a platform in the at the transom of the boat. Uh, fly fishing. As the guide moves the boat through class two, uh, they'd slip around class three water, try to at least, um, 
but but it's like fish are standing on a, a platform hmm. uh, that sits about three or four inches below the gunnel of the boat uh, on the downriver end, uh, looking for pockets and uh, fly fishing as he goes along. I showed some pictures to the Intermountain Guides Association over on the Snake River a few years ago, and one old grizzled guy looked at that picture and he said, "My gosh, they don't make fly fishermen like that anymore." <laughs> just, right. just, 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 yeah. So anyway, well, back, back to the McKinsey's yeah. erosion color. Um, there, when you look at a Rogue River dory and a McKinsey River dory or drift boat. Um, uh, they, to, to the untrained eye, uh, they look very much the same. Uh, there are some differences that are considerable that cause the boats to perform very differently. The McKenzie River Drift Boat uh, has a continuous rocker fore to aft, and that, uh, that, that design uh, provides uh, uh, great maneuverability through uh, really busy, bony uh, water. The Rogue River Dory, as it evolved down on the Rogue, um, has a very straight bottom line. Uh, typically, in, in, on the traditional boat, that, that bottom line has about a 60-inch flat spot for the aft. Um, and that means the, 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 the chine, uh, a greater extent of the bottom of the boat, is in contact with the water as opposed to the McKinsey boat where less of that China is in contact with us. That's why there's more maneuverability on the McKinsey River drift boat, less so on the Rogue River dory. That, that means that uh, on, on uh, running a rapid, if you were to lose an oar on a Rogue River dory, uh, that boat has a greater chance of maintaining its true course until you can get a spare oar in the, in, in the oar lock. And it's one of the reasons that boat has become the boat of choice uh, on the Colorado. Uh, Martin Lytton, in 1962, uh, visited uh, the White, McKinsey Whitewater Parade. And he was interested. He heard about these McKinsey River drift boats. And um, he came in contact with a drift boat builder by the name of Keith Steele. Um, and Keith, after they visited and uh, uh Martin made clear what he was looking for uh, in, a, in a boat for the Colorado. Uh, Keith built two boats for him. And uh, those two boats uh, were in use on the Colorado until he met Jerry Briggs. And, I, gosh, it had to be 1968, 1969. I think the first boats that Briggs built for uh, Martin uh, were in 1970 or 71. And uh, those boats, like the boats that Keith Steele built for Martin, um, uh, had a very straight chine line uh, and considerable contact uh, with, with the water. And the value of that to someone navigating a river like the Rogue is that uh, once you hit that line, you have greater, uh, greater likelihood of being able to maintain that line because of that straight, straight chine. It can also be problematic if you've got to do some quick pivoting and pulling because they're not as maneuverable as the traditional McKinsey River drift boat. Mm. But Martin um, uh, so loved those boats that uh, he asked Keith to uh, build a couple more for him. And Keith was a very prolific boat builder and boasted that he could build um, a boat in a day. 
And so Martin ordered up a couple more boats and uh, called him uh, from his home in Palo Alto. Uh, are the boats ready yet? And he says, well, yeah, yeah, they are. And Keith's idea was uh, that he could get on those boats and have them built in just a very short period of time. And uh, unbeknownst to Keith, Martin shows up at his door uh, two or three days later only to learn that he hadn't even started on the boats. And it, he, he was so disappointed that he just kind of, Martin, kind of left in a, in, in a huff. And he's driving down uh, Old 99. Well, let's see, this would have been on I-5 at that point. Hmm. And he gets to Grants Pass, and he sees a sign out in the freeway. It says, uh, Rogue River Boat Shop. And so he pulls off, and he looks for the Rogue River Boat Shop, and there he met Jerry Briggs. Uh, Jerry... Um, uh, is a very jovial, uh, affable, gregarious kind of person. Uh, they apparently hit it off fairly, fairly quickly. And out in the uh, out, outside the shop, uh, they were with a stick and some dust. Uh, uh, Jerry remembers it as being drawing the thing out in in, in dust. Martin remembers it as doing it in mud. <laughs> <laughs> the two recollections were a little bit uh, a little bit different, but. Uh, Jerry agreed to build um, a couple of boats for him. And that led to Jerry building, I think it was 35 uh, boats wow. for the Colorado, each one carrying a different name uh, that uh, Martin assigned to the boats. And his interest was in representing those boats as uh, environmental uh, 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 yeah, places like Diablo Canyon and Glen Canyon, and, and Emerald and Mile, or not the Emerald Mile, but the um, yeah, Marble Canyon is the best one. There's a the yeah. actual movie, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's uh, the, the two boats, the McKinsey and and the Rogue River Dories, uh, look very similar, but there are significant differences in how they function because uh, uh, the, the the rogues have just basically little rocker. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, and I have a bunch of questions. We'll, we'll, we'll dig into more of this here. Um, but one of them, I guess, right off the start is the, you know, the difference between the steel boat versus the Briggs boat. <laughs> was steel more of the McKenzie style or what was the difference yes, between those two? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Keith built McKenzie style boats, okay. but, uh, for Martin, he built two boats that, uh, I've got it. There's a picture in the book. Um, uh, of Martin uh, holding uh, a key steel boat, one of the first two that uh, Keith built back in 1961 for yeah. him. Uh, and you can tell a uh, very straight chine line, fore to aft. Um, and that chine line is uh, basically makes for a flat bottom boat. So yeah. Keith's boats were not typical McKinsey boats. Oh, okay. They were specifically built for Martin to address the unique. How did they know that? Did did like Martin know that, or did Steel? How did they know to keep the boat sixty inches flat before the Briggs boat started? That's a good question, and I don't I don't have an answer to that because in my interviews with Martin and Keith is long gone. He yeah. passed away back in mid seventies. Mar Martin's still alive, right? No, he oh, died. No. Okay. Uh, yeah, three or four years ago. Oh, that's ago, right. Yeah, at the age of ninety seven. Wow, and uh, a wonderful character. Yeah, oh, goodness. I'll, he, I'll put a. He, I'll put a link to the video, and I interviewed Mart, uh, Pete McBride, who uh, did some yeah. documentaries, and um, and I'm actually going to have some more. I've got um, 
like I said, a couple more. Uh, one of the Dory Grand Canyon boat builders is coming on, as well as uh, hopefully Kevin Fodarko, who wrote the Emerald Mile. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I'm interested in this Mackenzie versus the Rogue because, you know, obviously it's the big thing in drift boats, uh, the big difference. But yeah, like you said, most people can't tell the difference. The rocker versus more of a flat bottom boat. I mean, can you talk? I mean, people will know of boats today. And I asked this, I just recently interviewed Joe Koffler, who's one of our big aluminum boats. And, um, you know, do you know, uh, like, like Koffler, for example, are they Mackenzie or Rogue style? Or do you know all that about the new, the current boats? Well, um, most Koffler, uh, uh, craft, uh, as, as you look at the profile, if you see a continuous rocker fore to aft, that, that mimics the McKenzie river style. Uh, if, if you see a flat spot, uh, fore to aft of some distance, anywhere from yep. two or three or four feet to five feet, six feet, uh, I, 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 w- I would say that mimics more of the Rogue River uh, style. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So it's easy. You can just look at the boat and there's a bunch of boats too. I've been talking to some of the Idaho. Uh, well, I mean, you've got the wood boats, you know, you got raised river dories and, um, and then you got, uh, these Idaho like RO boats. There's a bunch of like wood and fiberglass boats out of there that are different. Some of them are actually not even, they have the flat front, you know, so they're more, they're more of a pram, I guess, than they are a drift boat. But do you consider those, are those still considered drift boats? Those, those kind of those more like fishing type pram looking boats? Oh yeah. 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 In fact, the original McKenzie drift boat, uh, 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 had, had a flat, uh, square transom and they would navigate the river, uh, transom first. And they, it worked really well the only problem you get into really heavy water uh it it could lead to causing the boat to stall out if you didn't have enough momentum to go over a haystack or something like that um so yeah i i you know any any boat that will safely contain a fly fisher or other angler uh on 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 a river uh that uh has a link uh to to, to the mckenzie i i don't know why you wouldn't call them a uh, yeah, uh, a drift boat. A drift boat, and it's interesting with the drift boat versus like your book title, drift boats and uh, R- river dories. I just before we got on, I googled up, you know, drift boat Ed River Dory. Uh, river Dory has about, um, I think it's like eighty, you know, pretty low. I mean, basically the order of magnitude higher in drift boat searches on Google is like two times two orders of you know, it's mm. like nine thousand versus ninety. Um, so why did drift- and, and- you know what I mean? You mean the river doors show up exponentially more than drift boat? No, no, the, the opposite. Saying? If you Google up, oh, if you see. if you type in drift boat right now, it shows up uh, two orders of magnitude higher than if you did, if you Googled river dory. So there's like no comparison. That drift boat seems like it's the one people are searching for. Um, do, do you see what, why did river dories not get? Especially since you got the Grand Canyon. What, why did how did drift boat stick? Yeah, tradition. Um, I, I, I had a long discussion with a lot of the old guides, uh, on the McKenzie and, and, um, uh, also, uh, uh, Jerry Briggs and some of the older, uh, fellas down there. Uh, and they, the nomenclature on these boats really is tied, uh, to tradition. Uh, McKenzie river drift boat is a river dory. Uh, Fellow by the name of John Gardner, uh, a uh, uh, 
boat aficionado uh, who died a number of years ago wrote a book that was published in 1984 called The Dory Book. And he carefully uh, makes a distinction between a dory and boats of other type. Dory basically is a flat bottom boat that has straight sides. In other words, there's no, uh, there, there are no, no knuckles to the side of the boat's straight sides. And uh, he called the McKinsey River drift boat the McKinsey River Dory. And he was taken to task by a number of people out of the, uh, out, out of the McKinsey River area saying, oh, no, they're drift boats. And I think the reason they're called drift boats is because in, in order to navigate the river, you've got to go from one point to the other. Um, these aren't intended to run back upstream. Um, and so the, the notion of drifting from here to there, um, at some point in the mid forties, they came to be known as drift boats okay. and why or how that stuck, uh, is speculation. But, uh, in visiting with a number of the old guides down there when I was doing my research, uh, that's how it's been known. And it's that, it's that tradition that has stuck, but. McKinsey River Drift Boat is by uh, definition, according to Gardner and some others, uh, 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 Chappelle, who's a, a boat historian of some consequence, uh, would call uh, the drift boat uh, a dory. So they, you know, the distinction mm -hmm. between the McKinsey River uh, Drift Boat and the Rogue River Dory uh, is, is, is why it's called me, it's basically the tradition of the area and has come to be known as such. Um, yeah. And I don't have a better explanation no, than that, Dave. That makes sense. No, it makes total sense. I think it's just, yeah, that, I mean, the drift boat stuck and that's, that's you know, you still have the Grand Canyon doors, which again, if we have time, I want to talk, uh, touch a little more on some of that history because... Mm -hmm. Like you said, the Martin Linton is this uh, is this old guy who was a really cool figure. But um, let's take us back. Let's go all the way back because and you mentioned this a little bit that you know these heavy, heavily wooded, very um, dense boats that kind of don't look a lot like a drift boat. Let's think back in history. I know in your book you touch on a few of these big names and turning points. Can we start back? Just take us to the start. Um, you know, maybe from that, whatever you call that first drift boat when it came on the scene, who was the person, where, where did it all begin? Is there one person? Well, in terms of guiding the McKinsey, the, 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 my research, uh, and the best of my knowledge, the first person to take a person down the McKinsey for hire was a, was a fellow by the name of Milo Thompson. Uh, the Thompson family is well known as Thompson without a P T H O M S O N. Mm. Um, and uh, basically was using the boat that was typical on that river for farmers and other people to cross the river back and forth. Just a traditional old rowboat. Um, and these these boats, um, the ones uh, that uh, the one that he used and became the uh, customary boat for guides that uh, came to life uh, after uh, realized that there was some money to be made here by taking. Uh, people down the river for hire, and that's in part because there was a fairly, um, uh, oh golly, fully hot springs. Uh, it was a place on the Upper McKenzie that was a lodge to which uh, moneyed people out of Seattle, San Francisco, some as far away as Chicago, would come and spend uh, two or three or four weeks uh, kind of 
therapeutic uh, hot spring, uh, whatnot. And these moneyed people discovered that there were fish in the river, and how do we how do we get some fishing done? And that's where the guiding actually started uh, on the Mackenzie. So the first time was 1910. Uh, there were a number of guides like uh, John and Roy West, um, uh, Prince Helfrich. Uh, that were using this uh, th- this boat that by the end of the day, uh, they were so darn tired, uh, bone tired, that uh, it never really occurred to them to think about uh, using or developing some other design to accommodate the uniqueness of the McKinsey until a fellow by the name of Velty Pruitt, who uh, uh, was born in, well, actually he was born in Arkansas, but raised uh, down on the Rogue, uh, at Merlin and uh, went to school in Eugene, connected with the McKinsey. And he, he built an old scow. He called it the old scow. And he uh, uh, built this thing, but like everybody else, by the end of the day, was so darn tired, uh, just I mean, working your shoulders off to keep that boat uh, navigable on, on the river that he decided to try to do something different. And uh, at one of the mills, there was a fellow by the name of Tom Carhus who migrated here from Norway, um, who uh, he and Vilti were friends, and Vilti asked him if he'd be willing to mill some planks for him, at least a foot wide and uh, uh, half to three-eighths to a half inch in, in thickness. And he was able to take this material and he built a small uh, light, uh, I call it a light board and batten boat that was uh, less than 13 feet long, had a three foot uh, breadth amidships at the chine, and it was highly maneuverable. Just it. So he built this thing and began to use it. One of the guides, a fellow by the name of Prince Hilfrich, spotted Velti. Uh, this would be about 1925. Uh, with that little boat, and he had seen him on the river a few times. And Prince uh, uh, was serving up lunch uh, to one of his uh, to his customers, and he was using the old scow, and he saw Velti go by, and he hailed him over and visited with him, and uh, Velti offered to let him take the boat out and give it a try, and so he went out, and he was just very impressed. short story is that Velti built a boat for Prince, and this led to an, a, a friendship that uh, uh, emerged between these two. And with that light board and batten boat, uh, they not only uh, ran the McKinsey with great dexterity, they also, and were the first to run uh, the Metolius, uh, the Crooked, the Deschutes, the Rogue from uh, uh, Prospect to Shady Cove, um, and run these wild rivers in these in these small boats. And their interest was in exploring fishing opportunities. And the boat provided them that 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 opportunity. In about 1934-35, um, a fellow by the name of uh, Woody Heinemann uh, moved into the area from the Panhandle of Texas. And he was an outdoors person. Uh, he was a cowboy and a, a, a cook for on a big ranch in New Mexico, just just west of, or excuse me, east of his home in McLean, Texas. And he became very enamored by the river and uh, went to work for a uh, person by the name of Tom Carhouse, learned how to build these boats and uh, 
he he was the one primarily responsible for what we see as the contemporary McKinsey style uh, today. 1939, he built a 14-foot double-ender. Up until that point, um, the boats had these broad transoms uh, on them. Um, and that was true for Velti Pruitt's boat also. And uh, Woody built these boats, became uh, very good friends with the guides, and uh, um, introduced this, this McKinsey-type of boat that came to be known uh, in the early to mid-40s as, as a drift boat. It wasn't until 1948, after the war, uh, that uh, the boat that you see today, the double-ender with a transom, McKinsey double-ender with a transom, uh, came to life. And uh, Woody had been building these boats uh, beginning, well, let's see, he started building boats in about 1930, about 19. 35, uh, but didn't build his first double-ender until August of 1939. And then from then he was, that's all he, he built were double-enders. Hmm. And what are, what are the, what are a, what is a double, just describe a double-ender uh, and also what the transom is really quick. All right. The double-ender, true double-ender is you have a stem and a stern post and uh, no, no transom per se. The, tr- the transom came to life in 1948. Uh, at the hands of Woody Heinemann, uh, something he didn't want to do. But one of the guides said, I want to be able to hang a motor on this oh, boat right. and down through the slower water of the Sayusla and the Rogue uh, with, with a motor. And so we built the boat and Woody uh, was against the idea. And But that is the boat type that uh, has come to be known as the traditional McKenzie River drift boat. So, so it wasn't the transom wasn't created for uh, for more gear storage. It was created mainly for a for a motor because I, I, I think now you know when you think a drift boat um, having a double ender would be cool for whitewater because you could go back you know backwards or forward doesn't matter right. But right. It, are there other things to be thinking about there? Well, originally it was in order to hang a motor on it, um, and uh, it's it's that boat type that has stuck uh, since then, and. I, 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 it does create greater carrying capacity. Uh, fellow man named Ray Heater, uh, Ray's River Dories, uh, one of the boats that uh, he has been enamored with over the years is a minor adaptation to the original McKinsey Drift boat uh, that that evolved with Vilti Pruitt and uh, Tom Carhus, uh, has that large uh, transom uh, and a 14-foot Rapid Robert, he calls it, mm. uh, uh, actually has greater carrying capacity than the 16-foot traditional McKinsey River drift boat uh, with, with, with a transom. Is that the one that gets uh, the, the rapid, uh, is it rapid, uh, it's not rapid robber, it's, uh, is that the one that gets up on, on step with a motor? Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's called, it, it, it's called a rapid Robert. Um, oh, Robert, and- yeah. Robert, yeah, without an S. Rather, and yeah. um, Tom Carhus uh, made the modification of the traditional McKinsey River drift boat with the broad tank transom uh, in about 1948. And uh, Mechanics Illustrated, they used to publish uh, uh, special projects that uh, accompanied their their 
monthly or quarterly publications back in the 40s and 50s uh, did a story on the Rapid Robert. No one knows where the name Rapid Robert came from. Hmm. Uh, it, it's not recognized on the McKinsey River among the guides, uh, but you get away from the McKinsey River and uh, people recognize that name rather quickly. And it has to do with the publication from Mechanics Illustrated where uh, it's project number 33, and it details the construction of the boat and uh, uh, really helped to popularize that boat type because it's a good dual-purpose boat. You know, you can navigate up to Class 3 water comfortably with it, put a motor on it, yeah. 10 horse, and it'll actually uh, it'll actually get up and yeah. plane. That's, that's the big question I asked Joe about that. You know, I asked him about, like, can you get a drift boat up on plane? Because I was thinking about that boat, and he said... You know, you can't because you need a flat plane area to get on plane, right? So so that boat, I mean, it must have a flat planing area, but does it, I mean, how does it do in whitewater? So is that basically, if you get into, I mean, three versus four, right? I mean, at what point do you swamp the boat? Well, uh, for, for skilled oars, you, you, can, you can actually handle class four water in that boat. And one of the tricks is uh, in moving into a uh, in, 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 into whitewater and a wave. Uh, a lot of guys who still, well, not a lot. There aren't many that use this particular boat uh, anymore, but they would quarter into it. So they use one edge of the transom as kind of a prow to break through. Um, and another problem with that particular boat is if you don't have enough momentum, uh, you can slip back in, uh, yeah. back down to a trough, and the boat will swamp very quick, quickly. That's but uh, again, for someone that knows what they're doing and has experience with it, uh, you know, you can navigate uh, class wa- three water very carefully and, and that's cool comfortably in, in class four. In class uh, I've, four. I've, 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 I've taken taken that boat down the rogue uh, several times. Oh, really? Think, oh, you've had it down yeah. the rogue. Yeah. There you yeah. go. There and, you go. And the Deschutes. And the Deschutes. Have you, have you on the Deschutes, have you been through the middle of uh, Colorado Rapids ever down through the big hole? Oh, yeah. Oh, you yeah. have? Have you, have, you been, it, oh, yeah. have you been through the middle of that in a, in a drift boat? Uh, no, I'm a little smarter than the average guy. I kind of slip off to the side. Yeah, well, that's the big question is that my, my dad has been through. I, he's got a picture going through the middle of Colorado and just the old, I think it's a Koffler. Um, yeah. and he's punching it and it looks like you're on the Grand Canyon. I mean, there's a wave of yeah. water coming over and I've never done it again. I'm, I've, you know, I've been through it in a raft, but in a drift boat, I kind of, man, I want to do that. You know what I mean? I like want to do it just to get the feel because I know it would be kind of, <laughs> the, the, you know, again, I go back to those videos because the Grand Canyon Dory stuff, I search, you know, I'll put a link in the show notes to this video, but there's one that shows this guy going into Lava Falls, which is one of the big rapids down there. And he's got these decked over. Uh, and we haven't talked about the decked over boats, but we'll, we'll dig into that maybe if we have time. Basically, they cover the whole inside of the boat with surface area. So when these huge waves hit, the the water mm-hmm. just floats off and then they can stay. But this guy comes in this humongous wave. I mean, these are huge. And uh, and it's slow motion, right? And it's also and you could see the guy every little move. And I know Whitewater pretty well. And I could see what he did wrong. You know what I mean? It's like it's <laughs> obvious when you see him flipping. I mean, you know, when you're in a rapid, it's tough. But he didn't turn straight into the wave it, it was a side curl mm-hmm. and he just was a little bit off and yeah. and it pushed him i mean it just rolled him left and i wonder that boat because it has that flat bo- flat bottom was it more the fact that it's hard to turn those boats as fast as you need 
in some situations. And so like Martin Linton, right? He's known as the guy is like, just keep it straight and just go forward, right? Yeah. Yeah. He, he, uh, I remember I've interviewed him several times. Oh, you and, did? Uh, wow. And there, 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 there were occasions when he just pulled the oar in his horse and said, "Well, that's all I can do," and ride it out. Amazing. Uh, and yeah, he's very interesting. Very Amazing. interesting guy. Well, tell me that yeah. because you know, briefly, Pete McBride. Like I said, I had him on. I'll put a link to that episode as well. He talked about Martin, and I asked him the same question. I said, "You know, Martin's this this grizzled old." you know, guy who's protecting the Grand Canyon and, and drift boat. I mean, he started basically the dories down there. I mean, describe, give me a little snippet into Martin, into that interview. Like what, what surprised you about that guy? Why was he such a, 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 such a huge person to be around? Um, or was he? Because he, 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 he was, uh, he thought big, he did big. Um, he, he was an environmentalist to the nth degree. I, I just really uh, was impressed by his capacity to uh, talk the talk. And uh, not only in his life did he talk it, he walked it. And uh, one of the reasons that people are uh, able to run the Colorado from uh, uh, putting in at the Lee's Ferry uh, down to Lake Mead is because of that man. Hmm. Uh, they're ready. In fact, uh, they're, I can't remember where it is on the Colorado. I'm one of these folks that dream about it, but never, mm -hmm. never, uh, been on the Colorado. Um, uh, he, not well, he single handedly led the charge to keep that dam from going in. And it would have basically destroyed, uh, any opportunity for people to experience the Grand Canyon as you experience it today. Wow. He, he, in many ways, he was bigger than life. Uh, a fellow by the name of Brad Dimmick. Yeah. Um, uh, he, he, hear, hear him talk about, in fact, Brad is interviewed on the, on the McBride film, uh, Martin's boat. Um, he gets pretty emotional. Uh, Brad does about, uh, Martin and what he was uh, able to do. Um, he was a pilot. Um, we had uh, uh, decided to uh, rendezvous, I think it was in Albany, and he was flying over to Lewiston. And uh, I think he was flying up until about the age of 86, 87, wow. something like that. And it was that, that and I, think, I think that was the same year. Same year he gave up the boat was the same year that uh, he made his last run on the oars uh, through lava. Jeez. Uh, at 87 years of age. Yeah. And just just a very interesting guy. So, so put very that interesting. put that in perspective Roger. You're about the same age of, as my dad and I know, you know, these days when we're on the river I'm usually taking my dad down, you know, because he's, you know, but I mean talk about that. I mean you're you're 82, right? Or in that range. I mean Think of right. running the not only being on the river, but running a drift boat. I mean, what, what does that feel like to you if you if you were to have to do that right now? <laughs> I well, you know, I, I really think I could do it. Uh, there you go. But I, I I do know that my strength is not what it used to be. But you know, the trick to running a, a, a drift boat um, has to do with knowing the river and being a lot more anticipatory than you might be otherwise. Uh, there are oarsmen who I have come to admire greatly. A fellow by the name of, name of uh, Dave Hilfrich, uh, his son Kenny Hilfrich, uh, 
Willard Lucas down on the Rogue River. Willard was, to me, uh, one of the most gifted and artful oarsmen. Uh, he was able to read the current so well that you would rarely see him dip the oars. And when he did, it was to position the boat and stay in a seam or in a current uh, that uh, just just made it look so easy. And that's something I have tried to model in, in my own time on the oars. And I, I, I think probably I've lost some of that <laughs> at, at 82. Uh, but uh, I... I I, I would I would certainly do it, yeah. uh, and my wife would probably have a fit, um, and my go. kids probably cheer me on. There but you I, go. I, I would probably do it. That's awesome. All right. Well, well stay tuned. I'm going to I'm gonna be working my, as I dig into this more, maybe I'll have an opportunity for uh, for maybe you or us to get out there. We'll, I'll check back with you because I've, yeah, I've but, kind of excited about, you know, putting something together as well. I've been talking about it and you know like i said i'm kind of addicted to those videos but um but let's um and you mentioned a couple people brad dimmick who i'm going to be having on and as well as kenny helfrich both of those guys i've talked to they're going to come on and and fill in some of the gaps that we don't probably don't cover here um but i want to bring it back to Heinemann because joe you know i mentioned koffler i asked koffler where that boat design comes from and he said he thought it was a Heinemann boat which kind of makes sense 1935 but Take us back. So I think we were in the in the you know chronolog- chronologically in the 1940s drift boat 1948. I mean, were there other people there from Heinemann on that um, we could talk about here that really impacted drift boats? Yeah, um, certainly Keith Steele. Well, yeah, you know, I haven't said much about Tom Carhus. Um, uh, Goodman Carhus uh, went by the name of Tom. Immigrated to this country in 1909. Uh, ultimately ended up in Eugene and uh, worked in a mill and had a had a, uh, a woodcrafter's shop and built uh, occasional boats, uh, uh, drift boats. Um, he, he was basically the person that, that innovated plywood as a, as a construction material of choice for uh, drift boats. Um, and it wasn't until 1938-ish that the phenoxy resin, the, the glue that held this material together, was of sufficient quality as to not deteriorate, that he began to build uh, these drift boats out of plywood. And he was the first to um, offer a drift boat kit uh, where he would... Um, provide the material and might form a few of the oars, cut the side panels, cut the transom, stem posts, and then the boat builder. And most of these people were guides uh, looking for efficient and uh, inexpensive ways to build their own boats. Uh, He basically was the innovator relative to the use of of plywood in, in, in boat construction until plywood came along. Um, you're pretty much limited to the material that you had, and that's why the um, why the uh, old scow uh, remained the old scow for so long. You can only bend those planks so far. Plywood, uh, it's amazing. People don't realize that a side panel um, on a contemporary wood drift boat is only a quarter inch thick or five millimeters, depending wow. on the material you're using. That's not much material, but... Uh, those things uh, hold up very, very well. And if you were to bang into a rock 
it's not necessarily the side panel that to take the damage that you know, one of the frames may fracture a frame. I I do a lot of modeling of these boats. Um, uh, yeah, you know, for people are interested in them, and I have on two occasions inadvertently dropped the model I was working. I had all the frames on, and when it fell, I I stepped to get out of the way, and I'd be darned if it didn't step right on it, and the darn thing held up. I, I and I saw that go. as I saw I saw that as a reflection of the uh, of the material and method of construction yeah that's, that's amazing that's and that's the thing your models that you create are essentially their exact replicas of of the yeah. of a full-size drift boat so it would be like if there was some giant uh, alien thing that stepped on a drift boat with you know a, right. a, i don't know 10 you know i don't know you know hundreds of thousands of pounds and and didn't squish yeah. it but these boats i mean talk about that a little bit i mean have you ever run into a rock so hard that you thought or have you put a rock through the the boat of your actual boat I haven't. Uh, Have you ever heard, talked did. to anybody that any recent? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's well, recently, uh, or just in the last, you know, whatever your life. Have you you've talked? You've seen people that have put holes in wood drift boats. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It it, it happens. It it happens. Uh, I've I've seen boats that uh, uh, took a rock head on and uh, cracked the stem post and separated the panel from the stem post. I've I've seen boats that have taken. Uh, uh, rock through the side panel on, on the rogue. There's a rapid below blossom bar called staircase, and uh, there, there's a really strong eddy on on the right hand side. And so when you when you take that stretch, you want to you want to be left, not get trapped in that eddy, because if you do, it it it's just real effort to get out of it. And a friend of mine, we were on a trip one time, uh, misgaged his place and got caught in that eddy <laughs> and he was going into the wall and so he lifted the oar blade up uh, to fend it off the wall well the force the current uh took that boat right in and that loom of the oar went right straight down and through the through the off uh side panel on on, on the left hand side uh, so all kinds of things can happen and you know a quarter inch or five millimeter plywood has its limitations but but i'm just amazed at yeah. the strength of these boats and uh, that's crazy and one of the reasons why it it really pays to become you know, i get I, I get a lot of people who uh, buy the book and build a boat from the book and one of my cautions has has always been if you've not been on a review or you really need to find someone that can tutor you or uh, provide some guidance and counsel. Uh, just don't jump in that boat and head on down. Uh, it, it's a different world. It's, it's very different than rowing one of these boats on a lake. Um, very different. Yeah. And so are, there are dangers that uh, you need yeah. to be very aware of and avoid. And, you know, I, I'm not to pat myself on the back, um, but I have never had a mishap. Uh, in a drift boat, and I attribute that to uh, exercising great care, knowing what I'm doing, and regardless of how familiar I am with a particular rapid, rapid, uh, you know, I'll get out and scout. Uh, Whitehorse on on the shoots is always something you got to scout. The blossom, occasionally uh, tie on 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 the road, but certainly blossom bar, and yeah. and it just it just makes a lot of sense to exercise great care. Yeah. No. And you mentioned, um, 
uh, like I said, Helfrich, the Helfrich family, they they run the Middle Fork of the Salmon uh, River that I've done, not in a drift boat, but I remember when I when I ran that river in a raft, um, I remember seeing those drift boats, being like, man, those guys are in wood boats. This is like intense. I'm I'm like struggling, <laughs> you know. I mean, it's yeah. pretty crazy. But hey, I did want to touch on this wood versus aluminum versus fiberglass because you know, you, we have these wood boats that were the first boats around, but eventually aluminum boats came in. And, um, can you talk about that change and then also where fiberglass fits in there and the history and, and how we came, because it seems like now wood boats, because, you know, you can't leave them outside are not the most common boats you see. It seems like maybe it's aluminum or fiberglass. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't speak to fiberglass, uh, uh very authentically. Uh, however, aluminum, uh, aluminum, as fiberglass does, I'm sure, makes a lot of sense because uh, the, the the maintenance required is is minimal. Uh, Jerry Briggs uh, built uh, wood dories up until about 1980, and in '81 uh, built his first col- uh, aluminum uh, Colorado River dory. And by the way, uh, I. I I'll, I'll, I'll take exception, Dave, to the utility of wood. Uh, yeah. I think wood has a great ability to stand to stand up. Uh, Jerry built three, five, 35 dories for the Colorado. I haven't inquired of Brad uh, for two or three years, but at the time the book was published, all 35 of those boats were still in use on the Colorado. Well, you you noted that that basically um, you, you take exception to the fact that wood wood can't hold up, or you know. But I, and I agree with that. I would say, you know, for me, for people that don't have a garage to, you know, my aluminum boat sits out in the backyard literally all year long, and all I do is pull the plugs, tip it upside down. If I did that with a wood boat, what, what would that look like in a in a couple years? Well, the water wouldn't be as much of a problem for the wood boat, you know, rain as sun. Ultraviolet rays oh, wow. uh, create greater problems for wood than moisture does, uh, and and so obviously you, you do want to provide some kind of cover for for a wood boat to yeah. protect it. How, how long do you think if you were if I had a, a wood boat? It was a brand new wood boat, and I just did that. I left it outside. It was in the sun. Just said, how how long would it take before you know you started to see some effects of? Uh, I mean, would would that be like the first year that thing would be? You know, well, probably. You know, maybe two or three years before. And it would depend on the material. Uh, some of these tropical uh, uh, panels uh, hold up better than plywood. Plywood has always been my material of choice. But the problem with plywood, dug fir plywood, excuse me, uh, is, is that it will check. Uh, and it will check primarily because uh, ultraviolet rays from the sun, not from the moisture. I have a I don't, I don't have it now. Uh, I let it go to uh, a fellow by the name of, uh, well, Vintage Wooden Boat Tours over in Jackson, uh, Wyoming, uh, A.J. DeRosa. Had been after me for my boat, my original boat, which at the time was 55 years old and uh, still very functional. And he wanted to add it, add it to his collection of vintage wooden boats. Um, and uh, that boat saw probably about 12 to 15 trips a year. Hmm. Uh, it would sit out uh, a lot during the summer months and the winter time. I would always uh, provide uh, protection uh, to, from, from the rain primarily. But 
uh, it got to checking so bad that uh, during the period of time from, my, from when I quit winter steelhead fishing to uh, getting back to fly fishing in the in the uh, spring, particularly on the shoots, the wood would dry out, and I would have to then fill that boat with water about one third the way up, and it would sit. I'd let it sit for. Uh, two or three days. And when I first do it, a darn boat looked like a sponge. Water would be just uh, spitting out wow. all, over, all over the boat. But after two or three days, uh, it, the, the wood would swell, tighten up like a, like, like a drum. Huh. And I was, I was good to go for the season. Amazing. And so one of, one of the liabilities of wood is that it, it does expand and shrink depending on the amount of moisture that it has in, in, in the wood. Uh, so anyway, aluminum um, aluminum has many advantages, uh, and one use site is probably the greatest advantage. And for these guides who are working out of their tackle box or out of their fly box, uh, they've got to have a boat that requires little to no maintenance. Uh, a, a wood boat, you know, it does take a little more care and uh, attention to some detail. I think it's interesting, since my book was published, um, more and more of these things are appearing. You mentioned Kenny Helfrich. Uh, his dad, Dave Helfrich, uh, was very helpful in pointing me and giving me some compass settings when I was doing my research back in the uh, mid to late 90s and uh, up until the book was uh, published. And uh, Dave had left wood behind uh, years before for, for his outfitting. Uh, since the book was published and um, the utility of wood has been uh, re-recognized, uh, Kenny's operation has almost convert converted totally to wood uh, and away from aluminum. If you were to take uh, a trip with uh, Helfrich River outfitters down the middle fork of Salmon, uh, all but one or two of the seven or eight or nine boats on that trip would be wood drift boats. Um, and, you know, wood, it, the advantage to it is it's warm. It's, uh, it's, it is easy. It's very easy to maintain. Uh, and there's just something historically nostalgic about wood. Um, but relative to the functionality of fiberglass and, and uh, aluminum, uh, wood boats can't compare. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, and all... Like I said, I'm going to have uh, Kenny uh, on, and we'll talk, we'll dig more into all the the history here. We don't have time to check in, and and yeah, I agree. I mean, I have an old wood boat, old Ray's River Dory, that actually was my dad's, and he's given it to mm. me. Um, it, it's got it, like your boat, you know, it's not it's not 1965 circa, but it, it's an old boat. Um, mm. It's been in a garage, but I'm wondering, like, you know, I, I want to. You know, again, we're not going to get into probably boat building here today, but, um, you know, I'm thinking about maybe redoing that thing, refinishing it and, and finding out how do you know if you got an old boat, what, what would be the step to do to figure out whether it's worth the effort? Is there any boat that's just how bad is too bad to, to think about refinishing? <laughs> that, that depends on the crazy guy that's going to restore the boat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I would I would find a good sharp all and I would I would try to pin it the chine, uh, the inside chine. It's that, I call it the keystone to, to a wood boat. What's an awl? Like a pointed, like a screwdriver or something like that? or a, Yeah, yeah, but yeah. very sharp point. Sharp point, can, okay. And you can dig into wood, press into wood. Gotcha. And that, that will give you a way to, 
to look for dry rot. Dry rot, uh, yeah. If it, if it slips in for fairly easily, you'll, you're probably slipping into dry rot. And uh, that will tell you how gotcha. extensive the, the, the dry rot might be. And also along the uh, edges, uh, inside edges of the transom and the uh, in the stem post. Oh, but yeah. all that place um, that reaches a point, though, where one might would probably think, eh, if I want a wood drift boat, maybe I'd be better off building one from scratch. It'd be a lot less work and a lot less labor intensive than restoring a boat. Yeah. But that that's completely dependent on the person and the history behind the boat and the family nostalgia. Exactly. Type particular boat. Exactly. Um, but I don't know of any wood drift boat that can't be repaired. Good. Uh, Good. That's great to hear. Yeah, that's for me, it's more nostalgia. It's my dad's old boat. It's the boat I remember. I've had uh, plenty of steelhead and deer even hanging off the back of that boat over the years. And, uh, yeah. you know, I'd love to. Well, if, you, yeah. if you go to chapter 11 in the book, uh, it details uh, the construction of these boats. And uh, reviewing that, you can become very familiar with the uh, integral parts of the boat and, and areas that you may need to pay attention to more than more than others. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know of any wood drift boat that can't be repaired, uh, and that depends on the energy and the interests of the person looking to repair a boat. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Let's take it back really quickly back to the the history again. Let's go way back to the start just for a second and say. Those first boats, before there was actually a drift boat, you know, they, uh, I guess Prince Helfrich or before him, they were running these boats. Where did those boats, what, what was that design? What was that first design and where did those come from? Well, uh, good, good, good question. I have a theory about that. Um, these boats take, uh, assumed uh, the shape of what used to be called uh, log driver. Uh You've been down the road. Have you stopped at Winkle Bar and gone up and taken a look at the cabin yeah. and then a look at the boat that's there? Yep. Uh, that that old double ender uh, is very much akin to the uh, boat that plied McKinsey in the early days. Oh wow! Uh, the the log driver was uh, designed and and built and used in Maine to herd stampeding logs downriver and to haul men and gear and equipment upriver to logging camps. And it was a very, it was a highly functional, uh, useful boat. And that boat type migrated across the country and ultimately landed in Idaho, Oregon, and Washington. Um, my notion is that that boat type is what you see in that Zane Gray boat at Winkle Bar. And without the transom of the boat um, uh, on the McKenzie, uh, it would very much look like that log driver. And because we are a, a, a population of immigrants into this area, it's, it's, it's logical that uh, people's familiarity with, with boats uh, who had inclinations and interests in those boats would be expressed in boats built here. Uh, so my theory is that, uh, I don't think can ever be proven, but my theory is that the boat types on the McKenzie and the Rogue, the very earliest boat types, were influenced by the log driving bateau. There you go. So that, that, yeah, so that goes back to that New England or that old, that, that thought that you hear that. Some people say, yeah, maybe, I don't know, it, it started. But it's still, you think of it as the drift boat as being an Oregon, an Oregon boat. Oh, yeah. 
not yeah, not yeah, a, that's yeah you no know, and, and that's that's one of the things that has so intrigued me about that boat the spawning grounds all these boats that you see around the country uh are the mckinsey and the rogue river um and and it's i i i consider them oregon's very uh unique design as a contribution to small boat design in in the country they didn't start on any other river in the country i have i have i i, I get a couple letters of uh, well, emails with pictures from people that have built a boat from 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 my my book and I, mm-hmm. my, my my guess is that from from around the world uh most recently from um uh tasmania oh wow uh, uh, that is the south of Australia, and um, the thing is, the, the, these boats are so highly functional, and the boats that are represented in the book are historic representations of the boats at each point in the evolution of those boats. People are building these boats and using them as fishing platforms. The two boats that have saw have seen the last. The, the least amount of, uh, of building are the light board and batten boat by Velty Pruitt and that old scow. Well, and also I, I, the lines to the Zane Gray boat that went to Bar also in the book. Mm. Uh, there have been maybe two or three boats uh, of each built over the last over the last uh, 13 years. Yeah. Uh, but the McKenzie River double ender with the transom and the Rogue River Dory and the Colorado River Dory. Yep. Um, they are very popular and yeah. people are building these from the book. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. Okay, cool. And well, there's a, a you know, a, lots of stuff here we're leaving on the table. Um, as far as any of the little details of any of these people, but I mean, before we start to think about heading out, is there, you know, any other people you mentioned Zane Gray, are there any other people we want to highlight that had a big impact on, you know, on the history of boats, we kind of, we were at kind of, uh, I guess, Heinemann, right. was in that area. Yeah. Anybody else we haven't yeah. talked about that had a big impact on, on drift boat evolution. Um, let me think. I mean, I mean, we got the book, so I, I <laughs> if you want to check yeah. it out, and where is a good place to go for that book? I guess, is that something just to go to Amazon or where would you recommend they pick up that book? You can do that if they go to Amazon uh, and do a search in Amazon uh, using the title of the book, Drift Boats and River Dories. Uh, it'll pop up and they can get it there. Uh, I've got a run on books here uh, for the holidays. Uh, they can get it through me at riverstouch.com. Um, and they'd get a signed copy. And then, uh, you know, there may be some retailers who uh, who listen to your podcast, uh, Fly Fishing Shops and uh, other retailers. Uh, the main distributor east of the, or excuse me, west of the Mississippi for this book is Angler's Book Supply in oh, Eugene, yeah. Phil, Phil and Mark Koenig. And for retailers that may be interested in having the book on a shelf for, for sale, yeah, uh, could go there and get the discount that they could, they, they can make a few bucks on the retail price. Oh, cool. Cool, cool. All right. And and what about, so, you know, again, going back all the people, is there one person, I know there's people along the way that had huge influences, but if you just say who was the biggest influence on drift boats, what would you say to that question? It, it would be Woody Hyman. Oh, really? Well, his, he basically innovated the double ender and ultimately the double ender with a transom. Uh, and there's some very interesting stories behind how uh, that double ender with a transom came about. And an interesting story on how it was he decided to 
uh, go with a double ender as opposed to a broad transom. Well, that's the question. So on the just no, just briefly on that. So a double ender. When I think of a double ender, it's got the two points on both ends. Right. How do you have right. a transom in the, on that as well? Because I thought the transom is the place to hold the motor. It is. Well, uh, <laughs> the the double ender with a transom is no longer a true double ender because it has a transom on the on the stern portion of the uh, of, of the boat. Uh, but the reason Woody. Uh, decided to redesign that big square-ended boat with the broad transom uh, related to his very first trip down the Middle Fork in August of 1939. Uh, he ran into areas where uh, that boat would pitch right or left, and in one rapid, uh, he never named it, uh, he swung the boat around and went down through that water uh, prow first. Uh, point of section first, and <laughs> the idea hit him. Well, that's a lot easier than going down with this big broad transom, uh, going down uh, transom first. And so he came back in that winter. He uh, essentially took that uh, that broad transom boat and replicated the frames that go toward the bow, uh, toward the stern of the boat, and came up with this true double ender, because plywood uh, was manufactured. Uh, the greatest length you can get was 14 feet. Uh, his first double ender was a 14 footer. That's around the shear line of the boat. Ended up being about 13 feet. But it wasn't until the end of the war that 16 foot panels became available and started mm-hmm. building 16 foot double enders, which became his boat of choice. And uh, the fellow that wanted uh, a transom, he wanted the tran- they wanted the upriver end of his boat replaced with a transom in order to hang a motor on it. That was 1948. Woody was opposed to it, but he did it anyway. And it's ironic uh, that that's the boat that has become the boat of choice for most uh, wood boat boat uh, uh, drifters. That's it. Um, that, that's, so it's a, it's it's an interesting story. Yeah, that is, and that's the and the 19 the the 16 by 48 inch boat is mainly that way because back then that's that's what plywood came in, right? That's why they stuck exactly. with that size. Exactly. And, and the technology for scarfing material together to come up with a 54, 56, or 57-inch 50, wide boat just wasn't available there. Yeah. And these boats are very efficient to build. Now you go 1648, you can get uh, two side panels for that boat out of one 4-by-16-foot length of, uh, of uh, yep. quarter-inch plywood. Yeah, that's huge. And then, and then, what about so on the Grand Canyon? So those boats were were those were they those were wood too? And but those weren't six. Didn't they build like seventeen or eighteen foot bigger boats? How, how did they do that? The the width on the boats at the Chine uh, did not exceed the four foot uh, width until the technology became available to scarf that stuff together to come up with a wider bottom. But yeah, they uh, they tend to be longer. The the Traditional Rogue River Dory or Rogue River Special uh, measured out at about 17 feet, uh, stem to stern, and it was that boat type and the footprint of that boat that uh, became the footprint for the Colorado River Dory. That, oh, uh, yep. just wider. Used to build. Yeah. Well, it isn't wider. It, it's a little wider maybe at the, at, at the shear, but the 14-foot, or excuse me, the 4-foot bottom remained I think through the time until he started building the aluminum boats, and they might have built those boats with a little greater width. Oh wow! Uh, on wow. the bottom, that's, that's cool. But the length, the length was greater. 
I, yeah. I actually posted, it was interesting, Roger. I posted, um, I should have asked you first. I did uh, cite your book and, and gave you a shout out. I, I don't think you're on Instagram, but I posted a, um, I took a, just a screenshot of your book with my phone oh. mm-hmm. uh, of the, um, and I'm trying to think of where um, the boat it was, but it was one of Martin Linton's, I believe. It, it was the one that looks like there's two um, uh, coffins next to the, the rower. Do, do you know the boat oh. design I'm talking about? Uh, my coffins. Yeah, there's this one. I think Martin. It was the boat. It was the Martin's boat, the one that didn't last. Like, um, let's see. I, I think I have it right here. I noted. Um, this was. Uh, well, here's here's the thing. I said. I said. I threw out another uh, throwback pick. Um, and it says uh, Martin Linton's son was sitting in the boat in the photo. Um, oh yeah, yeah. And I've got a. This, you know what I mean? Do you know what I'm talking about? That's the one he built. I think for. For, that was Martin's. There were two boats. One he built, uh, had built for Pat Riley. You're talking about the very earliest boat, and his son is sitting in the boat yep. on the trailer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Keith built those compartments for Martin. Uh, Pat Riley took the whole of the boat and built his own compartments. And I, I can't remember what the differences were, if any, between yeah. his and Martin. Well, that's boat. the big. That's the big one when you look at it. It looks like there's a couple of coffins sitting next to you. And I, I think if you're rowing down the boat, you don't want to be thinking about death. You know? Yeah, right. Yeah, from inside the boat, uh, th- those, those, uh, the tops of those uh, compartments actually sloped toward uh, the rowing well. Uh, and Jerry had a way that uh, he, he, he designed a special scupper that would allow the footwell of the rower to drain. So he wouldn't have to be preoccupied yeah. with bailing, but oh, wow. you can't do that for the passengers up front or the passengers in the back. They basically have to bail like heck yeah. uh, to light, lighten up the boat after they go through a place like upset or like uh, yeah. lava. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, the, the fun fact on that is, is that I posted that on Instagram and um, you can track, you know, with I can track all the insights. I can see how many people mm-hmm. liked it and stuff. And out of all mm-hmm. of my photos that I've done, in like the history of my Instagram, that uh-huh. old, old crappy screenshot I took of a gray and white drift boat is number one. <laughs> so, right? so it just shows you that there's some, I mean, maybe that's saying something about my Instagram, but it's also saying something that people are interested in this, you know, some old boat. And yeah. I, so yeah. I, I'll, I'll link out to that as well. So everybody can take a look or they can just buy your book and yeah. actually get the, the real yeah. photo. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah okay. Cause that, that is one there's in the boat. Yeah. In the book. Well, uh, yeah, Roger, like I said, there's definitely a lot uh, we left on the table. I'll try to fill the gaps or maybe direct people, you know, your way if there's questions. Um, you know, anything, I mean, I guess one thing, you know, drift boats for sale, that's another topic uh, that comes up a lot mm-hmm. when you search for drift boats. Where would you, right. if somebody wanted to buy a wood boat um, or just a drift boat in general, where would you send that person? Well, if they wanted a new one, I'd, I'd send them to one of the, very few builders uh, remaining. Uh, Ray's River Dories. Uh, Ray's retired. Cyrus Happy is retired. And a fellow by the name of David, I think it's Hayes, has taken over and he's building boats. And it's he still goes under the name of Ray's River Dories. There's a, a younger fellow uh, in his, I think, I think he might have just turned 40. Uh, Jason Hayes down on the McKenzie builds a really nice uh, drift boat. Uh, he hasn't started to kit them yet. Uh, and then you've got to go over into Montana, uh, and the builders over there, except for one or stitch and glue. If you're looking for a decent used boat, um, there, there's a, uh, 
there, there, there's a website called Wooden Boat. Oh dear, um, Wood. Wooden Boat People. Oh, cool. And if they do a search for a search for Wooden Boat People, you will come in contact with a whole bunch of people that are restoring boats, building boats, looking for boats, and it's quite a forum uh, for Wooden Boat uh, aficionados. And uh, you, you, you got to sign up to be a part of the group, but mm -hmm. it's it's well worth it. Uh, it's, yeah, face, it's, it's really a Facebook group. Form. Yeah. Facebook. Yep. And what about, this is another name that came up. I remember back in college, this was a name I remember hearing, is Don Hill Boats. What, what happened? Mm -hmm. what, what was, who was that guy? Because he seemed like he was a pretty big uh, wood boat builder. Yeah, he was. Uh, and he kind of uh, redesigned the McKinsey so that it had a little more breadth uh, from the rowing seat uh, to the bow, uh, in order to, uh, more adequately accommodate two fishermen up front. Uh, he never liked the idea of someone fishing out of the boat behind him and, and in front of him. He wanted to be sure to be able to manage, hmm. uh, the, the clients, uh, better. Was he not uh, a flight fisherman? Uh, yeah, he, he was, but, uh, he was not restricted. It, it would depend on what the client wanted to do. And, uh, so, and, and a lot of these guys aren't really excited about having people stand up and, uh, swinging their flies around. A lot of them will put the flies out in front of the boat and, and trail them. And then the oarsmen will. Uh, manage the boat in order to try to position those flies for hits by steelhead or whatever whatever it is efficient for. That's right. Uh, is that but Don Hill? Yeah. But, but Don Hill was a very uh, pretty popular. He died here about five years ago, five or six years ago. Yeah. Uh, and he's basically out of business now. Well, obviously he's out of business. But his website DH DH Driftboats is still up, and someone has taken over his business. Oh wow. Yeah, I've not met him, but yeah. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. That's, that's great. All right. Uh, yeah, there's obviously the, you know, like I said, uh, there's some, probably some other people we're, we're leaving off here, but I'll, I'll just, uh, as I keep going on my journey, this is only the second interview I've had in this drift boat series. So I've got a whole bunch of, um, you know, people coming up, like I said, some grand Canyon folks, um, just a couple ones before we get out of here, you know, maybe these are a little more, you know, kind of bigger questions, but you know, the, the Grand Canyon, I'm curious because I've never run it. And, um, you know, and I, I plan on getting you out there, but I mean, do you have any regrets, you know, not running the Grand Canyon? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's not because uh, I haven't had the interest, nor it's, it's not because I haven't had the opportunity. I'm one of these rare individuals that has a condition called cryoglobulinemia. And it's a, it's a protein that uh, when subjected instantly to cold, uh, the, the blood tends to gel up very quickly and moves much less efficiently through the, through the body. And so, you know, if I were to dump, uh, yeah. it's really cold water. Uh, there's, there's a 10, 20, 30% chance that I wouldn't, uh, that I, that I wouldn't, that I'd be hit by this before I'd be able to get out of the water and warmed up. So I gotcha. my wife, my, my wife who, for some reason, it stuck with me now for sixty. Well, it'll be sixty years next August. Wow. Uh, she's been pretty adamant. Nah, I, yeah. I don't. I don't want. To. Brad yeah. Dimmick has invited me to to, to join uh, his group on a couple of occasions. Andy Hutchinson. Yeah. So it's not that I haven't had the opportunity. There you I go. Just, it's a little too risky. There you go. Yeah, I'm. I'm hoping that. Well, yeah, then that, that makes sense. Obviously, there's. Uh, 
you know, <laughs> we want to keep you around, you know, for sure. So I, I hear that. Um, yeah, I just want to note quickly on the Emerald Mile, and you mentioned a couple people, Brad Dimmick, and, um, you know, I mentioned Kevin Fredarko who wrote that book. I, I will put a link out to that as well because that was an awesome book and talks about those guys that the premises is those guys that ran. I think they ran the Grand Canyon. Was it like 90,000 CFS? It was very high. Yeah, it was I think some that's crazy amount. Right. Yeah. yeah, it was very unusual. It was very unusual. Yeah, they're trying to break the, the speed record, and they, they think they broke it that trip by like 10, 10 hours. But the, one of the crazy stories in it was literally going down through um, uh, Crystal. Crystal was this huge rapid, but then because of the flows, the, the wave was like 30 feet tall or some crazy, you know, like... <laughs> And they dumped their boat. They're on this trip. They dumped their boat. And that's the great thing about these decked over boats is it seems crazy to me that, God, you dumped this boat and the drift boat's still floating. Um, the guy breaks his nose. They manage to flip it back over, hop back in the boat, and they and they finish the trip and they break the record. So, you know what I mean? Like, do you, what, what would you say? Have you have you read the Everett Bauer? Do you know that story? In fact, Kevin uh, was in touch with me several times while he was writing the book. And he was interested in the construction of, of the boats, and in his book is a uh, is a schematic uh, from my plans for the Colorado River Dory, uh, basically the Briggsian Dory. Uh, yeah, and and I couldn't wait for it to come out. I, I tell you, it it, it is a marvelous uh, book. I've recommended it to a number of people and have bought it as gifts to some friends. Uh, and he he does a great job of setting the stage. Uh, meteorologically as to why this uh, this big flow occurred <laughs> and, yeah. and these guys that, these these guys that made that run you know they yeah. they, they could have suffered some dire consequences uh, legally because yep. uh, the river had been shut down and uh, they were not to have launched and but they figured out a way to do it and they did it i know yeah no it's great that's great okay Right, Roger. Well, hey, uh, I mean, in, in today, I mean, this conversation, anything you want to leave everybody with? We, we we didn't talk about the building of the boat, but what would be your, you know, everything we talked about today, any take-home messages for somebody who's still listening? Well, uh, I guess one, uh, I, 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 I wouldn't decry wood. It, 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 its warmth and whatnot makes for a really fine boat, and the sharp chine makes it uh, highly maneuverable. Uh, and uh, as far as the book's concerned, uh Anyone that buys the book and is so inclined can build any one or more of the nine or ten boats that are uh, the plans and construction detail are provided in the book. Yeah. Um, but there's one story I, I want to tell real quickly. You asked about Grasshopper, and if I ever took took uh, took it head on, <clears throat> I have a friend who uh, was a counselor. He's not with us anymore. Uh, uh, would take uh, a client who was ready to experience some risk down uh, the Deschutes and and his preference was to hit that that uh, big trough and up over that stack head on and as they would approach it this one uh, he asked this one client says well we can slip safely to the right or we can take it head on and he says well let's take it head on he says I think I'm ready for this so they take it head on and the pitch of the boat was so great that uh, Clyde lost grip of the oars and was actually pitched out of the boat. And uh, they hit those uh, 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 diminishing waves uh, as, as they went through. But he was out of the boat and managed to climb back in the boat and very exhausted uh, state and grabbed the oars. And the guy up front turned around and said, boy, Clyde, you did that really well. Wow. 
they had no idea then pitched out of the boat amazing <laughs> That is so yeah. cool. Yeah. I, and I've seen that before. I've actually seen a raft, a couple of people in our group that did the same thing. They've seen him pitched upside down. I've seen, yeah. my brother has this story, same thing. I think he was going through there and he got flung out, was hanging on to the oar on the outside yeah. of the boat. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, I mean, I think, you know, I haven't, I haven't been down the Colorado, but I think that wave, and I'm, I'm sure that's why it was named that, right? But I'm sure that wave is comparable to some of the, some of the bigger waves a, in the Colorado. It, it's a huge one. Yeah. Yeah. Now I've I've I always uh, chose discretion over I don't know either valor or what, but I'd I'd, I'd sneak along the right side. Yeah. It. Well, yeah. I mean, my biggest thing is you know I think you got gear. I've actually been upside down, not in a drift boat. I flipped a raft down there one time, and you know that's that's definitely a crazy feeling. But I, yeah, that's the thing. You, you have your gear for four or five days or something. You know, you mm-hmm. fill your boat up, and I've done that one time actually in Whitehorse. I filled up. Um, an old fish right boat about two feet of water in the bottom of the boat yeah and we barely yeah. we barely pulled it to shore before swamping in the next wave but you know that's a reality yeah. right that's that's the problem it, i would take you know my my goal is i think to buy a decked out boat for the colorado and then t- <laughs> you know for the river for the grand canyon then take it down to the deschutes just to see right yeah yeah all right you 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 would find it a wonderful experience i'm sure so there you go if you want to find all the show notes with all links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 177. I would love if you can leave a quick rating and review. Uh, you can head over to wetflyswing.com slash love to, uh, to leave a review. I wanted to, uh, before we head out here today, leave a uh, read, a quick review that was recently written uh, by McFallon. Uh, and that goes five stars. I never write reviews, but... This deserves ones. I want to see this podcast continue to succeed. You've got great guests, good format, and clearly care about your topics. Keep it up. McFarlane from the United States. Hey, McFarlane. I said McFarlane. I was thinking of uh, somebody else, but uh, McFarlane, definitely appreciate you taking the time to leave a review. This is uh, amazing, and I I read every one. Like I said, you can uh, go to uh, wetflyswing.com slash love to leave uh, a rating interview. I want to thank you in advance if you have a chance to do that. So I have to take a deep breath after that one. Uh, Drift boats, you know, I mean, I think Roger did a great job uh, giving us a start. There's so much to dig into. I'm going to continue digging into these drift boats as I continue interviewing founders um, guides, drift boat building, just as I, I want to get this side uh, little series uh, buttoned up and, and covering everything. So um, so we kind of know what's going on. It's it's my interest, and I hope uh, you're really enjoying it as well. If you want to leave uh, some feedback, again, uh, hit that, uh, that speak, uh, the speak pipe link, because if you have something in the drift boats that I haven't covered or have something that you want to make sure I cover, cover on this thing it would be a great place to do it there um, if you have a connection to drift boats that would also be awesome to leave um, you know some sort of a voice message I want to thank you again today for stopping by to check out the show I'm looking forward to catching up with soon hope maybe see you on the river or online thanks for listening to the wet fly swing fly fishing show for notes and links from this episode visit wetflyswing.com and if you found this episode helpful please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes <laughs>